When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. This is Alf, the author of the Macro Compass, and I'm here with the one and only Tarius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Hey mate, how are you doing? Good, man. It's good to have the Dream Team back, man. How you doing? <laughs> the Dream Team? Did you actually uh, <laughs> trademark that? or? <laughs> no, someone else tweeted that earlier today, man, so I'm uh, paraphrasing. Cool, cool, cool. We, we can live with that, by the way. Um, so the news of the day is obviously CPI inflation in America, 7% year on year, highest sprint, I guess, in 40 years or so. Month-on-month uh, -month core to clean up a little bit of the of the noise is 0.6%, which is still you know relatively robust, but not growing anymore incrementally month-on-month. -month. Uh, real wage is down as a result. I mean, nominal wages are up, inflation is higher even more. So real wages actually drop. Market reaction, well, yields are unimpressed, they're unchanged. Actually, 10-year yields are down from the peak of 1.8%. They're hovering around 1.72, 73%. The front end, though, is pricing almost four hikes by the Fed. Interestingly, I should add, Eurodollar is rallying. Quite interesting, I would say. And um, all the assets that were hammered down last week, uh, the Nasdaq, Bitcoin, actually start to overperform once again, and commodities, on the other hand, are still rallying. So quite a lot of stuff going on we try to unpack for our listeners today. What do you think of the overall market reaction and the inflation print, Darius? Yeah, I thought the market reaction was sort of, um, you know, you typically see this in sort of uh, micro uh, sort of investing with, you know, earnings and things like that, where there's sort of a whisper number, if you will, on the buy side in terms of what investors are expecting relative to what economists are expecting. And I think the biggest takeaway is that, you know, this print didn't surprise to the upside, uh, certainly not in a material fashion. And so that's what sort of took, I guess, some of the, you know, the real, uh, the, the, the air out of the sort of uh, short bonds, uh, sort of, you know, kind of reflation trade, if you will, and sort of put some, um, some, 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 some impetus back into the kind of tech NASDAQ type, uh, type exposures. I think um, if you look at the, the report, you know, it, it, there was a little something for everyone in the report, right? From a headline perspective, you're going to get the political narrative associated with 7% headline. That's obviously a big deal. And then obviously core CPI continuing to gather momentum. Uh, we have that tracking at a 7% on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis. So that, that's a big deal. Uh, but on the other side, from a dovish perspective, and this is you know a leading indicator, you look at the sort of SARS for most of the baskets, headline, food, energy, shelter, OER, non-durables, and then even on a median basis, all of those seasonally adjusted annualized rates tick down. And I think the most important number of all that those 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 statistics is the median CPI rate, which slowed to 5% on a SAR basis. That's the lowest print we've seen in four months. So uh, kind of, you know, all signs are pointing towards disinflation for 2022. Uh, we know that tradable goods inflation is going to disinflate a, a material amount. The reality is, is does the Fed understand how much how tight the labor market is with respect to the wage pressures that are kind of meeting that um, meeting that process halfway? Wow, Darius, you just told the audience that basically disinflation is upon us 
on a day where inflation has on a nominal basis, CPI nominal headline basis, printed at 7% year on year. And you talked about a couple of elements in there because, you know, we, we get sold a lot of these headlines where we look at inflation is 7% or the month-to-month -month rate is very high. But you decompose it a little bit further. Do you mind rewinding back for, for a bit just to make sure that people understand why do you think the impulse, the inflationary impulses into 2022 are about to slow down, not to increase? Yeah, absolutely. So they're they're already slowing, right? Like we've seen, you know, so we've been tracking a lot of uh, the economic statistics throughout the pandemic on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis. So either month on month annualized, quarter on quarter annualized. So clearly these are month over month statistics. And, you know, kind of the one thing I call out is, you know, headline CPI not only decelerated on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis to 6%, that's the lowest print we've seen in three months, but that's down about 40% from where it peaked over in, in, in June of this year. And same thing with uh, core inflation momentum. You know, that's still down about 40%, even though it ticked back up very narrowly, it's still down about 40% from where it peaked earlier this year. So we're well past the peak in terms of impulse. And now all we have to do is roll forward in time to sort of uh, accumulate base effects that'll push the overall headline statistics down. So when you and I are having these conversations six months from now, inflation will be uh, likely fairly materially lower, uh, but I don't believe the core and stickier parts of inflation like shelter, wages, things of that nature are going to move in a direction quickly enough uh, for the Fed to back off of its, uh, its tightening mandate. And the result of that is basically that there are two key words that is used here, momentum and impulse. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's easy to watch at inflation numbers, but what matters is not only the number itself, but the rate of change of the rate of change of the yeah. price of this basket of goods. So that's the impulse of these inflationary momentums, which are under the hood actually slowing down. The bond, the fixed income market, I should add, actually agrees with that and has been agreeing with that for a while. Um, I pulled up a chart from the Macro Compass newsletter I write to just pinpoint to that, which is the slope of the US inflation break-even curve. So that will be basically 10-year inflation break-evens and two-year inflation break-evens, uh, one against each other. And basically, since around uh, the first quarter of 2021, the market started expecting higher inflation in the short term, but not a sustainable one. So the curve actually inverted, which means investors expect 10-year inflation down the road to be actually lower than the, the short-term spike we're going to see for, for a couple of years. So mm -hmm. while the definition of transitory might be debatable, because what's transitory effectively, the fixed income market is telling you that long-term inflationary pressures are going to reduce. So as Darius was saying before, the impulse of these inflationary pressures is likely to, to decline going forward. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And, and that's consistent with the Fed's forecast. That's consensus or consistent with economists' consensus forecasts. And you know, I do believe the Fed is well aware of, uh, this is always the Fed's plan all along, right? Which is it was going to be transitory. It peter out. Certainly, they thought it would, would, a lot of us thought, and myself included, it would peter out at a level lower than 7%. But the reality is that forecast is still intact. The big issue, in my opinion, is, is going back to Friday's uh, jobs report, which continued to be incrementally hawkish um, with respect to the tightness in the labor market. And and from our vantage point, it doesn't seem like the Fed has really gotten caught on to that in full. Um, it certainly seems like there's some upside surprise risk with respect to the sort of hawkish contingency on the Fed and how hawkish they're willing to be throughout 2022 as a function of those sort of uh, labor market inflation dynamics. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. And there is another curve, which is actually getting closer and closer to inversion is the 530s curve. So the slope of the curve between five-year and 30-year government bonds in America, which is flattening even further. And so uh, actually let's listen in for a second to what Jared Dillian and Peter Atwater discussed on uh, on the Real Vision interview. They were effectively talking about the Fed and curve inversion. Let, let's listen into what they said. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are still operating under the assumption that the Fed is this dovish institution that is dominated by liberals and academics, and they're going to keep rates at zero forever. I think the Fed is going to surprise to the upside in terms of the velocity of rate hikes. You know, the market is pricing in about three and a half rate hikes for next year. I personally think four is a done deal. Uh, we could actually get more. I think. Fed funds are probably going to 2%. I think they're going to invert the curve a lot. Um, you know, so when I look ahead to 2022, I mean, just in terms of the Fed, you know, once you invert the yield curve, then the clock starts ticking and you have anywhere between zero and 18 months before you get a recession. So next year could be a lot more challenging. And I'm not just saying that like reflexively as somebody who's skeptical or bearish all the time, but I mean, it's just the facts. I mean, the Fed is going to get more hawkish in 2022. Interesting remarks. The full interview is available for Real Vision subscribers, all tiers. Now, Darius, um, Jared Dillian in the interview was talking about curve inversion, nominal curve inversion. So is basically depicting the Fed, which is likely to be relatively hawkish and overreact effectively. Can you unpack a little bit if you think the curve is actually going to invert and why is that relevant in the first place for different asset classes, if that happens or doesn't happen? Yeah, so I'll take a step back before we even get into that and I'll say this is the second time today I've been showing up in in shirts. (laughs) Jared's shirt is outstanding. I don't know where he got it from. But that tip to that is a guy who likes uh, fancy shirts. But uh, getting back into the, into the question, uh, no, I don't think the Fed. I, I think the Fed is well aware of this sort of in curve inversion dynamic. And in my opinion, I think that's why they've been so slew-footed or slow to react to these inflationary pressures in terms of their dot plot, in terms of their messaging and signaling. And so it's my expectation that as they get going with rate hikes, and we definitely agree with Jared, but we actually made that call going back to the November jobs report we got in early December. We said, hey, they're going to have to hike four times next year. Um, because we, in terms of all the analysis we've been tracking in the labor market, that is consistent with the Fed's maximum and inclusive mandate. We've seen two step functions higher in terms of the rate of improvement over the last couple of months. So four hikes is a done deal. I think that's pretty clear and priced into the euro dollars market. The reality is with respect to curve inversion, I do believe the quantitative tightening dynamic that we're, they've introduced into the into the markets, you know, going back to the December meeting, but more importantly, the minutes of last week, that dynamic is what's likely to prevent curve inversion. It's very likely, I believe, that as we sort of get into the rate hike di- uh, process and the curve starts to get flatter and flatter, we may see them introduce a program like Operation Twist, i.e. something we saw in 2011, um, to prevent curve inversion or at least slow the rate of, uh, rate of that decline. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, well, actually, there is this elephant on the, in the room, right, which is quantitative tightening, what they're going to do with the balance sheet. I mean, yeah. um, we can talk about hikes and if they hike three times or four times, but the reality is that the impact of balance sheet reductions, and especially as you were describing, 
how are they going to reduce the balance sheet and what, what's the interconnection between that and the issuance pattern of the government, actually, that's going to play a, a pretty large role. And uh, there is a lot of thought on the fact that quantitative tightening might be less hard than initially thought because the plan, according to a couple of hints Powell gave us, seems to be that, yes, they want to proceed to, to reduce the balance sheet pretty quickly. So let's call it a trillion in 2021, maybe, just to shoot a number out there. We don't know exactly yet, but perhaps it's likely. But actually, the point is that uh, they plan to collaborate with the US government that is going to shift their issuance more towards the short end. And they're also going to make, let's say, make sure that the, the money trapped uh, in the reverse repo facility is going to get basically used to absorb uh, that sort of increased bill issuance from the private sector. This seems to be, you know, a little bit of a workaround, Darius, but the reality is how long can they work around a balance sheet reduction without being kryptonite to risk assets? I don't think they can work around it well at all, to be totally honest with you. And, and the reason I say that is that, yes, there's, a, you know, let's call it $1.5 trillion of, of reverse repo sort of looking for a more quote, quote unquote permanent home that's obviously in treasury bills or something of that nature. And yes, the government can actually start to increase um, its issuance on that side of the uh, on that side of the curve in order to sort of find, help that money find a home. But the reality is, we're all we're moving in the wrong direction as it relates to supplying asset markets with liquidity. The Treasury General account balance is now going up. It's bottomed and now heading up. The, the Federal Reserve balance sheet is now peaking and is likely to start to come down. And at the end of the day, that those are two negative dynamics with respect to a U.S. government that has to capitalize itself. I say this all the time. The U.S. government is at the top of the, the world's capital structure. It is the bully in the playground. And when it needs cash, it gets its cash. And it's either getting it from the Fed, it's either getting it from the foreign official sector, foreign central banks, or it's getting it from us, and we have to capitalize the government. And every moment, we haven't had to capitalize the U.S. government from at a material rate since you know February 2020. And now that we're going to have to start to capitalize the U.S. government again, old Uncle Sam, not just paying taxes, but actually getting those the the the, the sort of debt issuance uh, taken down, that's going to be a problem for asset markets because a lot of liquidity just simply ain't there from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, we I, I always want to. Uh, make sure that our listeners understand that we get into these discussions about what's going to happen in 2022 and maybe in the first quarter or the second quarter. But what Darius just described as well fits into a more long-term narrative of what real interest rates can be and can trade on an equilibrium level. So Darius was saying, actually, if the private sector needs to absorb more supply of collateral because reserves are going down into the system, out of the system because of quantitative tightening, and therefore it's the private sector that needs to be basically more involved in absorbing these issuance, then probably there's going to be um, a premium required uh, in order for the private sector to step in. That premium is generally uh, higher real yields, especially at the front end, where most of these institutional guys are involved. So we're talking about money markets, treasuries, corporates, actually recycling their dollars into treasury bills or short end. Now, the, the, the long end of the real yield uh, market, though, seems to be pretty stubborn. So if you look at 10 year down the road, 10, 30 year real yields, they're pretty low and they are not managing to get higher at all. And, you know, this is more the structural story. There are reasons why those don't go up. It's because if you look at the total debt to GDP, including the private sector and the public sector in America, in Japan, in China, in Europe, wherever you want to look at, you're ranging between 300 and 400 percent. So debt servicing costs are simply, simply on a real basis unaffordable if long-term real yields go up. I pulled up a chart again from the macro compass showing that, you know, structurally speaking, uh, 
the, the trick of expanding credit and lowering real borrowing costs has been played in Japan and then in Europe with a bit of a lag, eight years in the chart, and then in US as well with a bit of a lag, but it's still the same game. You mm-hmm. borrow more, you expand credit, borrowing costs go down on a real basis because that's the new equilibrium to make all of this affordable, and that's how you kick the can down the road. So while why we focus on short-term movements, let's always not forget that there is a structural background um, on the back. Or, or do you think differently about this, Darius? No, I don't think differently about it at all. A lot of the sort of you know kind of key drivers of why interest rates and, and and growth have been so low for such a long period of time, namely debt, namely demographics, are kind of the two main culprits. Those haven't gone anywhere. In fact, they're obviously moving in the wrong. They continue to move in the wrong direction. If you look at our five-year forward curve for working age population growth, if you look at our five-year forward curve for old age dependency ratio, those things are actually getting worse at the margins. And so you can make the case that, and I will make the case that the bond market is smart enough to look through all of these sort of not not only cyclical dynamics, but also shorter term, shorter duration dynamics with respect to the, the, the to the yield curve. The real issue, and, and this is something we've back tested as carefully as anyone, which is you know when the when you're doing quantitative tightening and you're doing it in a reflationary environment, that is negative for bonds. You know the the sort of the risk premium for bonds expands. Investors need to demand, but they need more yield. They need more return to to hold that that debenture, that security in their asset in their portfolio mix. When the Fed is doing quantitative tightening in a inflation that's stagflation for most of you, or in a deflation that's where growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously, in those scenarios, bonds go up in price because the risk premium assigned to other asset classes that that you know they start to get crowded out and those risk premiums start to widen and so that's effectively the reverse of exactly what's happened over the last sort of 18 months or so 20 months or so couldn't explain any better um how does this play out in in other asset classes we're looking at the nasdaq running back against you know more real economy or less valuation intensive sort of sectors in the equity market we're looking at bitcoin rallying back and we're also looking at some commodities staging a continuous rally like oil for example so how this how, how how does this play out in other asset classes then yeah absolutely so uh i'll tweet out these charts but i actually put together a quick analysis for everyone to understand you know sort of what quantitative tightening means from a from a um from a from a market risk perspective and so right now we're in this reflation regime the market is pricing in a positive impulse in growth and a positive impulse in inflation that's that's sort of the regime that the market is pricing in currently we do believe the next regime is likely to be a deflation regime, which is pricing in a negative impulse in growth and a negative impulse in inflation. And oh, by the way, that deflation regime is likely to coincide with quantitative tightening uh, on a trending basis. And so thinking about sort of, the, let's look at this across asset classes. From the S&P 500 perspective, just using that as a broad measure of beta, when the Fed is quantitative tightening in reflation, that's the positive regime, you know, your annualized expected return for the S&P 500 is plus 21%. When the Fed is quantitative tightening in a deflation regime, that's where growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously, your annualized expected return is minus 7%. When you look at Bitcoin, um, QT in reflation is 180, 187% to the upside on an annualized basis. QT in deflation is minus 37% on an annualized basis. And then Ethereum, it's even more wacky. QT in reflation is 456% on an annualized rate return basis. And then QT in deflation is minus 120%. On an annualized basis, and so you can sort of see the dynamics where, when growth and inflation are moving in a positive manner to support asset market valuations, to support risk taking, and ultimately support a compression of risk premia, that's very fine and dandy, and that's exactly where we are now. 
we're not going to be where we are now a few months from now. And that's ultimately what the market risk you and I've been talking about on this program for several months. Yeah. So again, guys, it's all about the impulse and the change of direction. So the direction has changed. I guess that's clear to anybody right now. So the, the uh, monetary policy is not accommodative anymore. It's actually a tightening path. And also, let's say, and both Darius and I argue, we agree in this case that inflationary pressures and growth pressures, so nominal growth pressures, are also subsidizing. But the, the issue here is the impulse at which this is happening. And, you know, as Darius pointed out, when those impulses become negative at the same time, then it generally, it's a very tough environment for what we call high beta assets out there. You can classify them as you want, but those are the assets that are more vulnerable to a repricing of risk premium across the board. Um, now, if we if we move for a second and we switch topic there is because there has been a piece out from HSBC that talks about China. We always cover the US, which is the backbone of the global economy. You know, we are all built on euro dollars here. The whole system is based on the US and it's US centric, but there are other jurisdictions which are very relevant like China. And they have, they've been applying this zero COVID case policy. They've been basically uh, having a, a one, a renminbi, which is strengthening all over the place. And, you know, uh, these guys have also been tightening a credit pretty large to a large extent in certain sectors, like the, the residential building sector, for example, we have seen of late. Mm -hmm. There are some shifts happening under the hood. And we got also a couple of questions about uh, supply chains problem in China that are or, or in, in uh, Eastern Asia in general that are causing some of these inflationary pressures. Um, what do you think of the overall Chinese situation? Are we going to see a change in behavior, both from a, a fiscal and monetary policy perspective and a, a zero COVID case perspective? Yeah, that's loaded. So let me try to take uh, take that bite by bite. Uh, so the, the kind of the, the short answer is, yes, we are seeing we've already seen, in, uh, in our opinion, a change in fiscal and monetary policy, mostly monetary policy, I wouldn't say fiscal, sorry, macro prudential policy in China. They're sort of easing up on the, the tightness uh, in terms of credit availability and uh, in the real estate sector, which obviously is you know, it's roughly around 24 or 25% of Chinese GDP. So that's a material, um, you know, sort of sea change in terms of their willingness to tighten and, and actually slow the economy to, to, uh, to rest out, wrestle out of excess leverage in that sector. So that's good. But on a lagged basis, so we're continuing to obviously get high-frequency data out of the Chinese economy every day, and overnight we got their uh, credit data and their inflation data, and both of those data sets uh, confirmed that a lot of the tightening we have seen are still flowing through the system on a lag. And so you look at uh, my favorite metric in terms of tracking Chinese credit growth, that's uh, total social, our total loans of financial institutions. And the reason I track that, um, there's uh, you know 83% of all of, of private and financial sector credit in China on the mainland is on bank balance sheet. So that's a really good metric to track to understand the whole system. And that slowed to 11.6% on a year-over-year -year basis. That's the lowest print we've seen since May of 2002. May of 2002. I think I was a Two. freshman or sophomore in high school in 2002. And so that's a meaningful that's a meaningful number. And you also saw you know, CPI uh, slow as well, uh, you know, PPI slow as well. So the disinflation and the, and the tightening that we've seen in China are still flowing through the system on a lag. But ultimately, the changes they've made at the margins you know, we'll at the bare minimum put a floor underneath Chinese growth. Our model has that bottoming in March of the or in Q1 of this year. So we're, we're kind of near that nadir and ultimately inflecting and trending higher kind of into and through the second and third quarter of this year. So we'll, we'll see on that part. But as it relates to the supply chain disruption, because I thought that was a very important part of the question as well. You know, China has a zero COVID policy uh, in respect to, uh, you know, managing the pandemic. But obviously, Omicron being as transmissible as it is, 
you know, I, I think Omicron, in our opinion, has the potential to break that policy. And if it doesn't break that policy, it's very likely that the Winter Olympics <laughs> break that policy. You can't have you know people yeah. flying in from all over the world with zero COVID policy. So in our opinion, I think that policy, the, the risk, in our opinion, is to the upside as it relates to uh, as market sentiment around China and Chinese growth, because ultimately we do believe that policy is at risk of of of, of being terminated. And as it relates to what China's sort of you know COVID zero tolerance policy has done to our supply chains recently. I think we're past peak from a supply chain disruption perspective. I actually started making that call back in November, and we start to get data that we're getting that we're now getting data that are confirming that the two most important data sets that I've I've tracked that really confirm that are the percentage of respondents in the ISM manufacturing and services surveys that's reporting slower supplier delivery times. And obviously, if you pull up a 50, 60 year chart of those of those indicators, you know they're way up and to the right, you know, kind of in no man's land, but they're actually starting to crash. On the manufacturing front, that one sort of crashed, you know, in December to 34.7. That's the lowest print we've seen since November of 2020. And then the services one crashed to 36.4. That's the lowest print we've seen since last March. So we're moving in the right direction as it relates to disinflation, both in the U.S. and abroad. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, Darius, however you cut and you, and you slice and dice this, it seems that the, the underlying thesis behind your, your macro framework now is that the impulse of monetary policy tightening is actually accelerating on the backdrop of an impulse of nominal growth, which is decelerating pretty aggressively. That seems to be your base case macro scenario, which again, guys, it's a probabilistic assessment. Nobody here has a crystal ball. So we have, probably Darius applies a certain uh, mass probability to that scenario to happen and considers it to be the base case. My question is, uh, I tend to agree, by the way, with that macro scenario. My question here, Darius, is, uh, if you are just you know, a long-only investor and you have a six-month horizon right here, you're looking to preserve your purchasing power and your capital, how would you, you know, allocate here and there your, your capital, looking at this scenario you have in mind? Well, it depends. That's a great question. I think it depends on if you're a high turnover or a low, low turnover investor. If you're a high turnover investor, I do believe this reflation trade that we're mired in has legs. Um, it's very nascent. It's very new. And we're still continuing to see a buildup in reflation pressure. If you look at our intermarket signals that we run at 42 Macro, and then if you look at our sort of you know sort of inter or intramarket signals, which are even more telling um, in support of reflation. Um, and then ultimately, you're going to have to make a pivot. You know, I, I believe you'll the kind of the timing of when you investors are likely to have to make that pivot will come in and around late Q1, early Q2, sometime in that time frame where the markets will really start to sniff ahead into this deflation plus quantitative tightening scenario. And ultimately, that'll be the lay of the land for a really uh, extended period of time. Um, if you're a low turnover investor and you don't want to sort of play for the reflation and you just want to manage risk, you know, kind of on a six month forward basis heading into that deflation, then the reality is you're going to want to be in low beta. As we talked about this a bunch already, low beta stocks, if you're going to remain long of equities, but fixed income is the most obvious sort of underweight across a lot of investors' asset allocations that will eventually get a bid, particularly on the long end of the curve, long end of the treasury curve, long end of the boom curve, things of that nature. 
Yeah, I have to say, if, if you're a low turnover investor with a medium term horizon in front of you, then I personally would um, try to steer a bit away from the high beta sectors of the equity market and the high beta assets out there anyway. So there are quality growth stocks you can have. I mean, the Nasdaq is already turning, but the Nasdaq is an index that also includes less low quality tech names. So you can be more selective there if you want to be invested in secular trends. Mm -hmm. The fixed income market, especially the long end of the fixed income market, seems to really struggle to go and 30 year bonds basically to, to yield anywhere higher than 2.15%. Because as we discussed before, if the Federal Reserve is more aggressive short term and tightens up um, and is more react and proactive, I should say, in this case, then obviously you're going to have, uh, you know, risk premiums uh, down the curve, actually, and term premiums not picking up. So the uncertainty around the long term projections of future nominal growth actually is not that much, which gives certainty to owners of long and bond not to demand higher risk premiums. And therefore, it's it's it seems to be a relatively uh, okay place where you were to try and preserve your capital right now, and especially to avoid drawdowns in high beta um, sectors of the equity market or, or other asset classes. We have one last question, Darius, I want to ask you from the audience. Can I actually uh, interject? Can I hop in real quick? You said something to me I think is so very important to unpack very quickly, which is sort of the the kind of the the, the, the uncertainty around growth is over from a longer term perspective, which is what the long end of the curve really cares about, um, is very low. And I would argue that the the certainty around growth from a short term perspective is so high and you know skewed to the upside with respect to consensus forecasts that it actually amplifies what you just said. Yeah. You know, so right now, if you look at a Bloomberg consensus forecast for real GDP growth in the calendar year 2022, that's 3.9%. That's 170 basis points, or nearly almost a double relative to where our five-year trend is. And yeah. so there's a lot of growth expectation in the market. And to the extent we start to see any slowdown in growth that is bigger than consensus expects in terms of this growth normalization process, monetary policy normalization process, fiscal policy normalization process, if growth stumbles at all at any point in time this year, you could really see a collapse in risk premium in the bonds and in, in, in long end of the treasury market and a blowout in risk premium in, in risk assets, particularly high beta risk assets. Well. Not much I can add to that. Thanks for pointing that out. I think it was uh, just uh, very helpful for the audience. Um, Darius, thanks for uh, for being on. I just want to make sure that the audience knows that tomorrow the Real Vision Daily Briefing is back. Uh, Ash Bennington will be back with Katie Stockton to uh, to talk to us. And uh, the conversation continue, continues on the exchange. So if you have questions for Darius and myself, just shoot at us. We'll be always happy to answer. Darius, thanks for coming on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Alf, you're the man, brother. Appreciate you. So catch you back here next time. Talk to you, man. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.